Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO, it is September 2020, and you know, it's been a few months, and I apologize for not having anything out there for you, being a little bit on the low, but I'm telling you, it's not because we haven't been working, it's because we've been working extra hard. We've been working on a project that I am so thrilled about. Um, Joe's been involved with it, who's on the call right now. Hey, Joe, thanks for joining us today. Uh, happy to be here again, Zach. And Janelle, and we're the, the project that we've been working on is a book, and it's a book through ELSO for eCPR, and it is fantastic. The content is, is just great. We got all of the, the first authors that we wanted. There are people from all around the world, people you know from the podcast, people you know from the eCPR world, who wrote a textbook that I think is going to be uh, very useful. I have learned tremendous amounts in, in editing the book. And so um, that is coming soon, soon, soon. That'll be out. Uh, and that's what we've been working on a bunch this summer. Zach, give us the title. Resuscitative ECMO is the title. And it's got, uh, it's going to involve not just eCPR. It's going to involve all the things that you need to do, like the crash ECMO. So crash VV ECMO, crash trauma ECMO, cardiogenic shock that can't wait. Uh, these these are the situations that, in addition to eCPR, we think needs needs a textbook, needs something out there that you can reference on the like immediately, and then something you can read at night and kind of get a, a broad stroke of what's going on. Sort of like the Elso Red Book, but specific to eCPR and resuscitative ECMO. Exactly. Exactly. So that is coming out soon. Um, on the another note, a few episodes ago, we talked about aortic dissection, and I, we, Garrett did a fantastic job. We talked all about it, and I kind of alluded to a paper that was coming out. Well, it just came out. It just came out in resuscitation, and I think you should take a look at it. We'll probably talk about it more than just today, because I know Garrett has some thoughts on it. I did write an editorial for, uh, for Journal of Resuscitation on it, so you can check that as, out as well. We'll put it in the show notes. But just because of permissions, I can't share the entire PDF, but uh, we can give you references for how to, to obtain it. Uh, Joe, what were your thoughts on, on that paper and the subsequent editorial? So I think uh, it's very important that this paper comes out. You know, aortic dissection has always been a uh, supreme contraindication uh, diagnosis in use of ECMO. Uh, but the challenge with the paper is that, uh, you know, we're trying to take a salvage therapy in somebody who is crashing and then applying it to a broader population. And in any situation like that, you're going to end up with a uh, high mortality rate and a low success rate. And I think the only challenge with the paper is that we need to apply this sort of medical version of a trauma thoracotomy to a very distinct population of people who uh, may have the ultimate possibility of a good outcome. And this paper uh, tends to provide a broader stroke to a larger number of patients, and therefore you're going to see a lower mortality rate. Of course, you know, we're a little bit biased. Uh, and on top of that, you know, you and I, Zach, have had two aortic dissection cases. So our N of two uh, in the past decade where we actually applied this therapy both had uh, you know, perfect outcomes, uh, neuro and tech survival. Okay, so real briefly, it's a Japanese registry paper, and I think the authors did a great job. I mean, they, they took uh, the data that they had, which is a huge amount of data compared to what the rest of the world has, 
and they said, hey, look at the patients that got had aortic dissection and got eCPR, and the mortality was huge. I think the survival rate was you know, a little bit more than 1%. Um, but with any kind of retrospective look, the problem is, is that you take all these patients who everybody thought was going to die, and we turned out we didn't do anything for them, and so they did die. And so you definitely have a bias there. Uh, one of the interesting things I think from the paper is that there was a um, almost 20% survival in the population that got surgery. So if you actually had surgeons that, that said, hey, this is something that we think we can salvage, uh, and they went for it, well, a reasonable percentage of people survived. And I think that number could even be higher if we kind of dug down and found out which of those patients um, really could do well. So uh, the, in the editorial, a couple things. One is that there was a, a large expense associated with that. And of course, if you're going to have a mortality that's 99%, then you're going to have a high expense. But secondarily, um, I think we can gain some things from the rest of the knowledge, or the rest of the literature, which Garrett and I explored, and that is that there probably is an overcall on this term contraindicated. That contraindicated probably is not the right way to talk about procedures that the alternative is death. And so in Eric dissection, we'll revisit this a little bit more, but uh, this paper was a good look and a good look at us being uh, or needing to realize that the stakeholders are key, that the pe if you believe that something is not going to work, then yes, it's true, it's not going to work. So with that, um, Joe, we, the, the most recent uh, patient that we had was an interesting configuration on how we did the ECMO. It wasn't typical VA, eCPR. How did you, because this leads into the topic today that we wanted to talk about, how did you exactly do that? Yeah, so uh, my approach to the thoracic type A thoracic aortic dissection uh, in somebody who is, show, you know, peri-arrest. And that patient that we discussed had gone into VF and PEA arrest several times, but had pulses back at the time that we had to make a decision. And that really comes down to how long is it going to take for you to get that patient to the operating room and how long will you will they be able to survive no intervention versus intervention. And so my approach to this in all these cases is what's the worst case scenario? Well, worst case scenario is uh, that person's either going to dissect into the pericardial sac and have a pericardial tamponade, in which case we have have uh, the pericardial uh, synthesis kit available, or that patient's going to dissect into their valve, their aortic valve, and then they're going to arrest from severe pulmonary edema. So in either case, uh, I, I think you need an art line in early, as we, Zach, you and I have talked about for freaking ever. Uh, as long as the patient has a pulse, find an arterial line to get and get it now while they still have a pulse, because that thing gets harder and harder to get whenever you start CPR. So try and get the uh, the uh, the arterial cannula or arterial line in while the patient saw his pulse. So that was sort of number one, femoral arterial line. Uh, after that, you then start thinking about, well, okay, you know, is this patient going to arrest? And, in fact, he did uh, and then got his pulses back. So you're now thinking, well, we got 20 to 30 minutes before they get to the operating room. So, um, you know, my, my thought there was, okay, if he arrests one more time, we're going to put him on VA ECMO because this guy's going to die. Uh, and then a weird thing happened. Instead of arresting again, uh, we got his pressures up a bit, and then he went into florid pulmonary edema. And his actually his pulse and his was was fairly strong. His blood pressure was starting to come up, but then he turned gray, and his SATs went down to fifty percent. And that changes everything. So now what's going on? Now this guy's not uh, in a cardiac arrest. He is in a he's in florid pulmonary edema from his dissected and uh, destroyed aortic valve. And uh, so 
now we look up and the guy's got 20 minutes to get to the operating room. So the thought process there was, okay, now we need a different kind of a bridge, something we hadn't really done before in the syndication. Let's put them on VV ECMO uh, in order to just support that pulmonary sort of pulmonary bypass to bypass that flooded lung uh, and allow his beating heart to continue doing so. And that also saves the, you know, you, you want to you want to tap lightly on that uh, on that aorta, and so driving a bunch of uh, fluid through the aorta retrograde in somebody on VA ECMO in somebody who's got an aortic dissection is always a tenuous a tenuous thing for reasons that you documented actually, Zach, in your uh, in the editorial for the aortic dissection paper. You know, you can there there are several things that can happen when you put a uh, a cannula into the artery that's dissecting, right? Yeah, and one of the interesting things is that stroke is one of the major risks. Uh, we're not talking about like having the aorta explode. We're just talking about having it, the clot flow off. So, um, so really cool case. And Joe, I mean, it was just amazing that the outcome and that you were uh, persistent about that because I that that young man would have died if you had not had the the forethought to put that patient on VV ECMO right then and there. Um, I want to get in. So what the whole topic today is, is about crash VV ECMO. And so that case brought up the idea of, okay, we put a cannula uh, in their neck and we put a cannula in their groin, both on the venous side, but, but we can do a number of different configurations. And we just had another case where uh, in the ICU, we decided to put it on fem-fem bypass. Joe, do you have thoughts on in the crash section on where we should be putting these cannulas? I think it comes down to convenience, to operator convenience. Uh, I also similarly had a case uh, two weeks ago that uh, Dr. Wilms called me upstairs to help him with, and uh, it's very similar to yours. It was an ARDS patient. I'm not even sure for whether it was a COVID patient or not, but it was an ARDS patient and needed VV ECMO, and so we just decided to go fem-fem. But in the case that we discussed, the aortic dissection, because of convenience, you and Garrett were at the head, and I was down in the groin, so we just went uh, jugular uh, femoral venovenous at that time. And I think it comes down to what's sort of the most convenient and easiest way for you to do it, having ultrasound available or not. Yeah, and so today we're going to have David Wilms actually on the show. We're going to ask him. He's our director of, of ECMO for the hospital. He is fantastic. He's done so much with our COVID population over the last five months. And we're going to ask him all these questions with VV ECMO. How do we do it? Where was the right configurations? Uh, and then kind of leading into what is the what is the management styles that we need differently to think about when we're putting somebody on VV, crash VV, versus these eCPR patients we have in the ER. Any other thoughts before we get David on the line, Joe? Yeah, the only the only real difference here is that and this is kind of a, a broad statement, but the ICU folks are used to having people intubated and then watching their respiratory status decline over a given period of time. It's a rare indicator, and therefore VV ECMO is you know used more often in the ICU. You know, it's actually the mo- much more common than VA ECMO, but. In the ER, what are situations where, for the ER doctors listening out there, what would be indications where you would consider putting somebody on VV instead of VA crashing in the ER? Uh, and, you know, just thinking of a short list, anything that causes resp- acute severe respiratory failure. So that's going to be, uh, you know, we, we had a, um, a an aphylaxis case. Uh, remember the uh, 22-year-old kid that had eaten peanuts and then uh, went into severe anaphylaxis. But think- about things like aspiration and, and drowning, smoke inhalation, uh, severe asthma, airway obstruction from something you can't get out. I mean, that'd be an option. Uh, maybe severe pulmonary contusion in somebody with trauma 
uh, and of course the classic ARDS, which that's not something we usually see in the ER. But you know, it's a it's a rare indication where we're going to do crash VV ECMO in the emergency department. Uh, but those might be some of the indications you can think about. So we keep saying that we keep saying that like there's there these are rare situations, and yet Joe, we keep having them, and we keep having saves from it. So it's it's pretty amazing. So you you mentioned the the group anaphylaxis. We got to include at severe asthma in that. Any type of failed airway, you could you could say that this is your true salvage when you can't even get the crike like a vv ecmo could potentially save a patient uh, obstruction and then um and then like you just we just noted that that severe pulmonary edema as a result of a broken aortic valve from a dissection is just one of like a myriad of bizarre cases that could potentially benefit from crash vv ecmo all right with that let's get david on the line and we will get the expert so today david i want to Pick your brain as far as how VV ECMO works. How do we do this in a crash situation? The patients that can't really tolerate the, like, let's wait a couple hours and, and get them to the operating room and get the fluoro and all that stuff set up. But I got to do this right now. And I want to sort of pick your brain on that. But before we get there, the sort of elephant in everybody's room these days is COVID. And I know we've had quite an experience at Sharp with VV ECMO and COVID. Could you just speak a little bit to how we've been doing? Uh, yeah, uh, Zach, we've been doing uh, some ECMO for COVID-19 patients. Uh, I would say that definitely this pandemic has increased our use of VV ECMO for ARDS over uh, the baseline rate. And uh, we're one of several hospitals in the San Diego County Consortium that have placed patients on uh, ECMO. There probably have been approximately 50 patients in San Diego treated with uh, VV ECMO for COVID ARDS. And it appears that uh, around the city and, and also at our hospital that the uh, survival rate is right around 50 to 60%, uh, which I just checked today on the ELSO uh, registry website, and 54% is what they're uh, uh, indicating in terms of survival. Patients have come to an endpoint uh, in centers around the world, over 2,400 patients uh, now worldwide. So I think it is, uh, it's a valid approach for that. And uh, what we're, we're, we're learning many things about VV ECMO for ARDS uh, in the context of the pandemic. Um, one of which is uh, probably the earlier we institute it, the better we are. And maybe we've uh, delayed too long sometimes uh, in the past. Okay, all right, so very nice. So morphing that now into this whole idea that, that in some patients we, we should be thinking VV ECMO and we should be thinking about it relatively quickly. We had our Eric dissection patient that we put on the, the podcast a couple months ago and maybe some other ones we've talked about asthma or maybe your anaphylaxis or your, your failed airway attempt. Tell us the, the thought process in your mind when you have somebody that is crashing and you need to put them on VV on where to put the cannulas and, and how to get this done quickly. Yeah, Zach, and I think you mentioned the three alternative sorts of diagnoses that come to my mind uh, that would be potential candidates for VV uh, ECMO in an urgent situation. Uh, again, as you well know, uh, for most situations where you've got to act right now in this minute, most of those are hemodynamic situations or cardiac arrest. Uh, situations where VA ECMO is the uh, preferred approach, but 
I have used uh, BV ECMO urgently for uh, status asthmaticus, uh, where you had incipient barotrauma or profound hypercapnia and respiratory acidosis. We had at least one case at Memorial that uh, where it was used for uh, anaphylaxis, as you know. Uh, so there are some selected uh, indications for, for BV ECMO uh, emergently, and airway obstruction uh, may be one of those, especially if it's uh, not 100% complete uh, airway obstruction where you just need uh, a transient period of uh, oxygenation and CO2 removal to bridge to some other uh, therapeutic approach. Um, I think, uh, and of course, uh, more commonly, it's acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, whether it's ARDS or uh, some other sort of uh, fulminant uh, hypoxemia that occurs. I think uh, in terms of cannulation, uh, for those settings, uh, that the bicaval or double lumen uh, internal jugular approach is probably not your best choice. Uh, the issue there is that you really need to have uh, some sort of secure imaging of where the guide wire goes uh, and thence where your catheter goes. You don't want the catheter to end up in the right atrium or the right ventricle or uh, shear off the uh, azimuth vein. Uh, for example, so typically when we're putting in the uh, right IJ bicable catheter, the long one, uh, we want to visualize the guide wire either with fluoroscopy or uh, bedside ultrasound or echocardiography. And sometimes visualization, depending on the, the individual patient, can be kind of difficult. So I think of uh, in a rapid uh, approach to VV ECMO that probably the femoral femoral approach uh, makes the most sense. Um, sometimes femoral uh, outflow and jugular inflow. And some of that might be conditioned by uh, where the patient might already have a central venous catheter, for example, if they've already been in the ER or the ICU for a bit and had a, have an IJ line or a thermal line that you can rapidly uh, exchange over a guide wire to a larger uh, ECMO cannula that might dictate where you go. Of course, you still have to have central access in those patients. So, that might involve uh, additional procedures. Okay, so in your determination, it sounds like you, you do like the FEM-FEM approach. Uh, is there something in your mind that makes you decide whether you're gonna do a, a bicaval or a, you know, high line and a low ECMO catheter versus a FEM-FEM approach? I think if we have a patient uh, who's in, typically in my hands, it would be a patient who's in the intensive care unit who definitely needs DV ECMO, but we have some time and enough stability perhaps to move them to the cath lab where we like to uh, put the bicable catheter in uh, where we can have really high quality fluoroscopy. Uh, we can inject contrast and, and, and view that in real time uh, as well as ultrasound. Then, then maybe we would put the bicable in. Um, it, there was some initial advice during the COVID-19 outbreak and also alluded to this, that maybe avoiding the IJ approach was good because uh, you put yourself, the operator, right next to the airway where you might uh, potentially uh, be exposed to aerosol. Although, in fact, these patients are intubated and on a closed circuit. So I, I think that was really not really a, a key issue. I think it's more a matter of uh, what's what's really quick and easy. And in most patients uh, with normal anatomy, femoral femoral can be uh, thrown in very quickly. Especially okay. if you have 
So tell us that, what type of lines, what size cannulas are you looking for if you're going to do the fem-fem approach? Well, what we're talking about today is mostly patients who have uh, severe hypoxemia, and consequently, in order to really treat them well with venovenous ECMO, you are going to hope to have uh, fairly good extracorporeal blood flows uh, so that you can overcome that shunt effect of their native cardiac output. So a larger is typically better. Uh, what we're typically placing right now is somewhere around 25 French uh, outflow and inflow cannula can be smaller, but often um, if we're uh, using a uh, femoral femoral approach where we have an outflow cannula position in the distal inferior vena cava or just uh, up the iliac vein, uh, then we're, we're using a fairly large return cannula because it's long uh, with resistance uh, and we're, you know, returning blood flow to the right atrium area of the uh, vena cava. So 25 and 25 French is what we're typically using. If we have those, uh, we actually, in some cases, sort of run out of those and have to use a little bit uh, smaller French size. Perfect. So 25, 25 ideal on the fem-fem approach. What if you're going to do a jugular? What are you going to put in as the the uh, return cannula size? Yeah, we put in a couple of those lately. Actually, we've converted a couple of femoral femoral or femoral jugular to a single bicable uh, as we went on with the support and uh, wanted to mobilize the patient. So, uh, again, the largest size that you feel uh, the patient can accommodate, I feel, is, is the way to go. Uh, we uh, have a couple of average size adult males right now who have 32 French uh, bicable cannulas in. Uh, that seems huge, but uh, the internal jugular vein typically is, is fairly elastic and generally can uh, accommodate that larger size. You know, of course, you might have to go smaller uh, with a, a smaller individual. Um, and if you're only, if you're more concerned about CO2 removal and oxygenation is not such a big deal, like in the status asthmaticus case or maybe anaphylaxis, then you can go with a smaller cannula because you don't need such dramatically high blood flows. So if you're doing femular, femoral jugular approach, what size cannula are you going to put into the neck? Um, you can, then that's going to be your return. Uh, in the femoral jugular, nowadays that is going to be your return cannula. So you don't need that huge cannula. So a 19 French or 20, 21, depending on what brand cannula that you have, is, is probably fine. And um, I feel like it's less crucial that you have uh, imaging uh, of the guide wire in those cases because you're putting that in only as far as you normally would a central venous catheter. And so are you using the arterial catheter that's a shorter cannula, or are you using the, the longer catheter in those approaches? Yeah, for the return cannula, we're using what would normally be considered an arterial cannula, short one. Uh, uh, and, and, of course, it's worth realizing that in a femoral-femoral approach, if we're using the short one in the distal IVC as the outflow, which we tend to do to try to avoid uh, a large degree of recirculation, Again, you're using an arterial cannula, a quote, unquote, arterial cannula as a venous outflow cannula, as the, uh, you know, the uh, cannula pulling blood out. Um, so 
the cannula doesn't care so much whether it's an artery or a vein or whether it's the blood is coming or going. Uh, it's just important that if you do use a, a short cannula for outflow, that it be a multi-hole cannula, you know, not just one at the tip and maybe a side hole. You're going to need multiple side holes as well as the distal hole so that the vein doesn't collapse around it and restrict your flow. Okay. And there are plenty of those available. That's awesome. So I've got I've got the different approaches. I've got uh, bicable if I can go into the fluoroscopy suite. I've got a fem-fem approach, which seems to be the safest. We've got the jugular femoral approach, and we're going to use a shorter catheter. Where are you thinking the ideal location is for the tip of the, both the access as well as the return cannulas? Well, in femoral-femoral, I, I feel like uh, for the outflow cannula, which is the shorter one, uh, you generally are going to have to try to get the tip above the bifurcation of the inferior vena cava. Uh, what the problems we've had when we've not gone far enough is that with the cat with the cannula positioned in the uh, iliac vein, uh, it might uh, suck the vein down, vein is smaller, and there's the potential of having uh, the vein sucked into the cannula holes, and basically your flow goes to to nil. So you need to be up past that bifurcation. And then for the return cannula in this femoral out, femoral in approach, we like to position the return, uh, the tip of the return cannula near or at the right atrium uh, so that uh, most of the flow out or flow back into the patient is directed uh, directly into the heart. So again, that you diminish the amount of recirculation. Because every bit of recirculation you have impedes your ability to oxygenate. CO2 removal is still no problem. Uh, you just adjust your sweep gas, but you really uh, are impaired in your ability to oxygenate the patient if you recirculate. Okay, so we've now got we've got the patient on. Let's just say we put in two femoral cannulas. They're in great position. We got a follow-up imaging. Maybe we used ultrasound to confirm, or we did an X-ray even. I know some people out there, TEE is a big part of this, and we're using that to to guide our wires. And then, of course, fluoroscopy and the people who have that ability. Um, Tell us some of the additional things we need to consider when we're thinking about um, VV ECMO. And as far as turning the pump on, flows we should be thinking about, anticoagulation, what, what is different? Uh, there's a number of things that are, are a little bit different. One is uh, we, we still strive to have zero air bubbles in the circuit at the time of uh, setting up. However, um, realize that in VV ECMO, uh, all blood is returning to the lungs, which are a filter. And so small amounts of air, and I mean small amounts, uh, are, are not going to be crucial as they might be. I mean, one small bubble into a VA side can give you a stroke or an MI. Uh, that's less likely with VV. So that's, uh, it's at least reassuring, although, you know, again, we have to be careful. Um, typically, again, most of the indications for VV ECMO, aside from maybe status asthmaticus or anaphylaxis, most of these indications are for treatment of profound hypoxemia with massive intrapulmonary shunting. So in order to adequately oxygenate the arterial side, you're going to have enough, have to have enough blood flow going through the right heart and the lungs that is oxygenated. Uh, to overcome that. And so we're typically looking for fairly large blood flows uh, through the pump. 
And in an average adult, again, four to five liters would be uh, typically what we're trying to achieve. Our perfusionists just have a habit, uh, probably rational, of uh, matching in the initial setup, just matching the sweep gas flow to the blood flow. So if you're getting five liters per minute in the pump, you set the sweep gas at five liters per minute until you get your initial arterial blood gas, and then you can uh, tweak it from there. That's kind of a good rule of thumb, and uh, you don't have to think too hard about it. Uh, you just match the, the sweet gas flow to the extracorporeal blood flow. Um, going forward, uh, you know, managing the PCO2 of the patient is a simple matter of just adjusting the sweet gas flow up or down, and you can most of the time make the uh, PCO2 what you want it to be. Uh, the beauty of that is then, of course, uh, you don't have to use the ventilator for that purpose, and you can markedly reduce uh, tidal volumes and pressures and respiratory frequencies and presumably the uh, toll on the lung that uh, mechanical ventilation causes. Okay, so most of us are familiar with the low tidal volumes approach. Just tell us what your initial vent settings would be for someone, let's say, they, they've got, uh, they got crashed onto VV ECMO. We're trying to use it as a, as a oxygenating uh, adjunct for the patient. What would you set the, 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 the settings for the vent? So as soon as uh, efficient extracorporeal flow uh, has, uh, has been achieved, and typically we're going to see the O2 sats on the oximeter arise right away, these patients are typically not in the high 90s to begin with. That's why we're putting them on ECMO. So once you see that uh, you have effective uh, circulation and oxygenation, I try to fairly rapidly reduce the ventilator settings. And typical settings that I might uh, strive for would be a, a set rate on the ventilator of around 8 to 10, sometimes lower. Um, a tidal volume below 6 milliliters per kilogram predicted body weight, which would have been our target beforehand. Um, a PEEP level. A PEEP is very difficult to sort out in these patients. Uh, they may by this point not really even be PEEP responsive. So uh, the idea would be to not overdo it. So probably a PEEP of around 10 or 8 uh, and... Uh, then the FiO2 might need to stay at 100 initially until you get your first few sets of blood gases, and then you can work your way down. Obviously, uh, ultimately, we want to try to reduce the fraction of oxygen going into the ventilator circuit because of the potential for oxygen toxicity. But I, my personal opinion is that volume and pressure are more toxic to the injured lung than oxygen is, uh, at least in the short term. And so uh, those things I try to achieve very quickly. Now, if you have a terribly compliant lung and you can't get a tidal volume of one or two or three milliliters per kilogram, that should be okay as long as you can, uh, you know, get the kind of extracorporeal flows you want. So I, I, I try to tell my team, don't obsess about the tidal volume. If it's 20 milliliters or 40, that can be okay until the patient, you know, has time to improve. David, this is awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, any last thoughts or comments to the to the audience? Well, again, we're learning things uh, in the COVID epidemic. Uh, all of us that um, 
we may have known before, but uh, it, it's a, a little bit striking. One of the things that is listed as a contraindication to ECMO for uh, acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, ARDS, is a prolonged time on the ventilator. And greater than seven days is the typically quoted amount. If you look on the ELSO uh, website, uh, their guidelines suggest that that uh, might be uh, an upper limit that we need to consider. Uh, just uh, out of the logistics uh, that we've faced during the epidemic, uh, transfer of patients, uh, desire not to use ECMO, and then finally having to fall back on that, both we and our, the other two big centers in San Diego uh, have all put patients on at you know, 10, 12, 14 uh, days or more on the ventilator and have had some success, almost the same degree of success. You know, some will die, some will live, uh, but uh, people have made it out. Uh, so that's one of the things that, uh, you know, I've learned to not be too arbitrary about that if it's a otherwise perfect candidate, a young person with clearly reversible disease, no other organ dysfunction to speak of or uh, not severe, then we might consider that uh, in selected circumstances. On the other hand, having uh, um, recently saw a, a program that UCSD put on uh, where a group from uh, NYU uh, depicted their experience during uh, April and May in New York City, their mean time to going on ECMO was somewhere around three days, and they had a remarkably good survival uh, benefit. So uh, it just kind of tells you what you kind of know. If you put a lot of people on very early in their course, you're going to have much better results. On the other hand, we know that some of those patients might have done okay without it as well. Um, so... Uh, Useful to not be too dogmatic in our approach mm. to take patient as an individual. That's excellent. All right. So take homes for this this whole episode is that uh, we've got to realize that there are multiple different approaches. You can go fem fem. You can go fem jugular. You can go with the bicaval. You have to be cognizant that uh, tidal volumes are not the whole answer. That sometimes if we have adequate VV ECMO, that we can deal with much lower tidal volumes. In general, we should be shooting for lower tidal volumes with this. PEEP may be good, maybe not. Maybe uh, a low level is a reasonable approach, 8 to 10, as David said. And um, and then just the types of patients that we think about in this. We think about anaphylaxis, we think about asthma, and we think about a number of other situations that are kind of more esoteric um, and that we've had success even in patients as bizarre as aortic dissection. So with that, David, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, appreciate it. Thank you, Zach. Good luck. All right, folks. Well, that's September 2020 EDECMO with David Wilms and Joe Belezzo. One thing that David just said afterward, which I think is useful, he's like, I want to tell the ER docs out there that remember in these situations that you can crash them onto VA and then we can transition them to VV later on if needed. And so, for your next DD shift, for your next ICU shift, for your next cardiology shift, think about crash VV ECMO to save your patient. Signing off.